Welcome to the Big Picture Social Emotional Learning Podcast. I am your host, Nini White, and today I'll be co-hosting with Elizabeth Sheffield, a veteran special ed teacher who has over 20 years classroom experience and also a dear friend. The guiding principle for me when inviting guests to share conversation on this podcast is that they be solution-oriented with real evidence-based approaches that will enrich your life as a parent or educator. This conversation will not disappoint. In fact, it will inspire and elevate. You may even want to take notes. Today's guest, Peter Vermoulin, who lives in Belgium, you will notice his beautiful accent, I'm sure, is one of those rare thought leaders who helps others reevaluate long-held beliefs and reconsider the actions chosen in response to new understandings. Peter Vermoulin has his PhD in psychology and pedagogical sciences. He's been working in the autism field for over 30 years. He presents internationally on autism in context a term that will have much greater meaning once you've listened to this conversation. You will want to check out the resources and links in this show's notes. And I will be so grateful if you will leave a rating for this podcast and a review on Apple Podcasts, preferably, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, welcome again to the Big Picture Social Emotional Learning Podcast. Welcome, Peter Vermoulin. Did I pronounce your name correctly? You did. Thank you. Um, I recently told a friend of mine whose older son is on the spectrum that I was going to have this conversation with you, and she just lit up with appreciation and gratitude and respect. So um, I'm doubly grateful for this opportunity to share this conversation with you and ask questions that I know that she and I both really want to uh, learn from you. So um, what, I spent most of yesterday watching YouTubes of you and reading <laughs> written and <laughs> you're really worth it. <laughs> A lot of those links I'm going to put on the um, show's notes, but I just want to, I just want to have your thoughts on you. You do not feel that there is much value in defining people on the autism spectrum by describing their difficulties around social interactions, communication patterns of behavior, because you see all of those elements as consequences of having brains that work in autistic ways. That's just that's just such a great turnaround for me. So you've written that autism can only be defined in terms of perception and cognition, and only in the context of how an autistic brain experiences the world. So, Let's hear you. Well, well, exactly, because, you know, um, I think there's not such a thing as autistic behavior. I think there's only human behaviors. Mm-hmm. And, of course, autism is defined in terms of behavioral criteria. Uh, the classification systems that psychiatrists and psychologists use for making a diagnosis, they describe behaviors. But if you look at them, they are human behaviors that I think every human being would show if they would perceive and understand the world in an autistic way. 
So that's why I say these are consequences. And, and let me just give an example. Um, you know, if you are being overwhelmed by a lot of sensory information, I think many humans would not be very social in their in their uh, in their behavior. They would try to survive in a, in a world that is experienced as as disturbing, maybe even hostile. And then I think, well, then it's difficult to relate to other people. So in that way, I'm not saying that everybody is a little bit autistic because it could be interpreted like that. But that's not what I mean, because, uh, you know, we can all have an autistic experience and then show an autistic behavior. But that doesn't make us a little bit autistic because, you know, uh, being autistic means that you have it 24-7 and not just once in a while. And also that all the elements come together. I think everybody can experience some sensory overload at some time. Anyone could experience a misunderstanding in communication or understand something too literally, but we don't have it all together all the time, you know? Um, so in that way, you know, it's like saying that um, if you define something as that, that's an, an, an analogy that I took from um, Sue Fletcher Watson. She's a researcher in, in, in the UK and Scotland. And she says, you know, Many people can experience a little piece of autism, but autism means having it all together. So take, for instance, a cake. Autism is a cake. And it's not because you say, well, I I'm a little bit of milk myself, or I'm a little bit of flour myself, <laughs> that you are a little bit of a cake. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> that's that's what I mean. So therefore, if we really want to understand autistic people, we need to look beyond the behavior that we see and try to see the autistic perception and cognition. Mm. Well, we call that empathy, don't we? Trying to step in another person's shoes. Exactly. That was, I was talking too long, or I was going to say your, your window on this, it absolutely evokes a more empathetic response. So yes, and, and this is one of the many things that I love about what you are bringing. Um, and and do we wanna go into talking about the, the parts of the brain that seem to be most affected or do you think there's another direction that we would take right now? Because I have other sets of questions I wanna ask you. Well, well, what we do now about the autistic thinking, and that's how I frame it, autistic thinking. I'm obviously not, referring to conscious thoughts all the time because 90% of what we do in our brain is unconscious work. Um, I think we should give up looking for a specific region in the brain because the newest research says that, you know, although scans can show all kinds of differences, you know, what is important is how all these regions work together in a brain. Mm -hmm. And the newest theory about the autistic brain is that it's, you know, it's not located in one area of the brain before. And that's as long as we were looking at behaviors, we were, for instance, social interaction difficulties, then we focused on the social brain. But, you know, it's, it's you know, it's not just social interaction and communication, it's perception and cognition in general. And so we think, we assume that the whole brain is involved there. And in that way, I think it's a bit of an oversimplification to look for autism in the brain. And what I love is, is your 
big picture, you know, your holistic, your fully inclusive perspective on this whole topic, that it's really important to, to get that perspective at this point and stop putting these people in a silo and separating them from us, which, which you're not interested in doing. No, because, um, yeah, I'm, you know, it's a bit of a double story. In one way, what I've done all my career is trying to increase empathy for how autistic people experience the world. Mm -hmm. So telling how different their way of information processing is, that's that's one line in my career. And I've written many books about how different an autistic brain is. But then there's also the other thing. Um, cognition is one thing, but human needs are another thing. Yes. And although the brain could be running on a different processor, as we sometimes say, the needs are the same as for any other human being. So it's, if we focus too much only on the differences and the difficulties, um, we could increase empathy there, but we also have the risk of alienating autistic people, making aliens of them. Yes. And we should not forget that although they experience the world in a different way, that they have the same needs. And so in that way, it's it's a bit of putting things into balance. You could make the mistake of ignoring their different way of perceiving the world and ignoring their difficulties by saying, well, everybody has that. Or you could make uh, the make the mistake of ignoring the similarities. And, and therefore, you know, I have this company which is named Autism in Contest, but that's just me. You know, I'm also the light bulb changer at the company. Um, it, I, I chose for the name Autism in Contest because I think we need to see things Autism in Context. Mm -hmm. Autism in Context. Got it. Because we need to see Autism in Context. Yes. Another thing is, for instance, what, um, what I sometimes see is that we make the Autism thing too big. That's also a form of putting things in context. Um, sometimes the, the autism is overlooked. That's one mistake. But sometimes once a diagnosis is made, people only see the autism in a child. And they forget that that child does not only have human needs, but that child is also living in a certain environment, is surrounded by a certain context. And you should not explain everything away by saying, oh, that's because he's autistic. Right. And yes, which is actually something I've seen on playgrounds when when kids identify that one of their peers has autism, sometimes they start dismissing the interaction like, well, we don't interact because this person has autism and it's hard for them. So we go do our own thing or they they they, they dismiss and don't try to include or if there's a problem, they say, well, that's because you have autism. And that's exactly what you're talking about, I think, is dismissing, well, that just because this person may identify with having autism and you identify with them having autism doesn't mean that they don't want to play the game too and be included. No, and, and, and that's why we, we, we need always to take into account the autism. Um, we always need to, as we do with any other person characteristic. You know, if, if I talk to my mother-in-law who's 94, I will talk a bit slower and a bit louder, but I'm not reducing her to her age because in other areas I, 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 I communicate with her or I do things with her that I would do with any other person. And with autism, it's the same. That's, it's a very important label, but it's only one of the many labels that defines who you are. Um, and in that way, autism 
people should never be reduced to their autism because that's happened too often in both ways. And for instance, when there is uh, another shooting, uh, there were some shootings in, in the States and then the label autism came up. And then I think this has nothing to do with autism because I know so many autistic people who would never shoot someone. Okay. okay, so don't don't put the word autism up there because it's irrelevant for the story and for the things that happened. But also in a positive way. Nowadays, you know, you you have to when you talk about autism, you need to refer to people like Einstein or Elon Musk or or and then you think, come on, that's not good either for kids. You know, then then they are forced into stereotyped one-liners about autism who could be stereotyped negative one-liners. He can't do that because he's autistic or stereotyped almost two positive one liners. Oh, every autistic person is, is a genius. No, <laughs> you know, this is, this is an autistic child and let's see what his difficulties are. Let's see what the opportunities are. And you always take the autism with you, but you look for, for instance, in schools, what is difficult? Okay. Let's find a solution there and not, okay. You shouldn't do that because you're autistic. Or it's difficult because you're autistic. This, I really appreciate this point being uh, elucidated. Um, one thing that this podcast is very much about is solutions. So, so how would we, you know, with those kids that are having that response to the child that ha has, they've all been told this child has autism or is autistic. Have you any suggestions for what the teacher could do or the parents could do to help um, not get those kids thinking in that one silo like that. Well, I think what, what, what you could do is normalize autism. And what do I mean with normalizing? Saying, look, we all have something, you know, um, and sometimes it, it is labeled and sometimes it's not, but it all comes down to, for me, certain things are difficult and I need support there and some things are easy and then I can support somebody else with the same. And if we teach children already at young age that everybody in the classroom has things where he or she needs help, then it's to the other kids to help that child. But also, how can this child help other children? Because too often in schools, what I see is that autistic children, once indeed they are identified as being autistic, they're the ones who stand on, on, on the lower end um, of these interactions. They are the kids who need help. What is often and so very good idea is to use a buddy system where kids help each other but it's always the autistic children needing other children as a buddy what if the autistic child can be a buddy for another child because every autistic child has something to offer as well and i think if we we go that way then we normalize autism like okay everybody has some difficulties what's yours yours is mouth yours is um, you can't uh, take stairs because you, you know, you're impaired in your legs and, and yours, okay, you have difficulties making friends. Okay, how can we all help each other? And I think we are then kind of creating a next generation that is more open to diversity, yes. but who is also more open to supporting each other because that's something we've a bit missing now that when it comes to support for autistic children, we're too quickly we jump into solutions of, oh, then you need a therapist or a professional. Right. What about what about children helping each other? Exactly. Informal support is very important. So beautiful, which which leads into your whole 
explanation about the autistic needs are just human needs of happiness, health, and empowerment. And, and all of that can happen when in the classroom and these relationships, these natural relationships that work for everybody are, are set up. So I, I love that. Um, yeah, because one of the, uh, the, the consequences of having an autism diagnosis is then people learned many decades ago, and this is actually very good, that, okay, autistic children need structure. And that's true. They need structure. Uh, but structure is sometimes translated into a kind of a cold technical approach. You know, give them um, you know, visuals and, and give them some, some task analysis, organizes. And what about relationship? What about warmth? What about a good relationship? It, it's not because they have autism that they do not need uh, social interaction and that they don't have social needs. That's one of the big misunderstandings that autistic people are perfectly, or just children are perfectly happy when they have a schedule. Um, they want people around them who are warm and friendly as well. And that's a bit overlooked nowadays, I think, because that's connected to those basic human needs. You know, in, in my uh, trainings, I always say that, you know, the, the universal pyramid, the pyramid of universal needs, sorry, that Maslow once defined many decades ago, that, that's not different for autistic people. And so being surrounded by people who understand you and that you feel comfortable with is a very basic human needs. So basic that one of the things I've noticed is parents of students I've worked with, all of them have stated that the most important thing for them in school was that their child found a friend and a real friend, not somebody who would just spend time with them or help them do something at school, but a real friend. And that was a, a very common conversation we would have around the table. How can we support the student to really build a real friendship? Even yes. more important and than that, academics. That, that's very, very important because there's the need for belonging as well in autism. However, what we do is then we, we forget about a double approach. So what I often see is autistic children have difficulties making friends and keeping friends. Then we send them to social skills training to teach them how to make friends. Well, in itself, that's, that's a wonderful idea. But what about teaching non-autistic children to befriend an autistic child? Exactly. And, and the question that comes up for me is that um, my friend whose son is autistic, and I've known him since he was a baby, and just love him without boundaries. We were at Thanksgiving. And at one point, he actually had eye contact with me. And it was so unusual, but it took me a long time to get used to not having eye contact with a person that I'm, that I really feel for. And I know he feels for me. And how can people who are like me and children get used to not getting the same signals that we're used to with other kids? Does that question make sense? It does, but, but talking about eye contact, for me, when a child does not make eye contact, my first question is again, why don't you make eye contact? Because I think it's not to avoid contact, but it could mean different things. It could be like I've heard from autistic adults say, when I'm having a conversation, I look away because then I can focus better on what you're saying. 
looking at you and listening to you is too much. And then I think, okay, all I want is us to communicate very well. If it helps you to communicate with me by looking in another direction, who would I be to force you to look into my eyes? It could sure. also be that they don't feel safe yet to look into the eyes because, you know, making eye contact can be quite intrusive. Yeah. So maybe you need to be a little bit more patient and wait until the child feels safe enough. And I, I see it with, indeed, with autistic people I know very well. They do make eye contact with me. Yes. That's not an issue. Um, but they need time to grow into the warmth of the relationship. So again, it, it's we need to, to look beyond the behavior and then try to find out why are you doing what you're doing and, and see the need behind there. And the need could either be, give me some time. I will get there. Don't force me. Because forcing people into a certain social behavior always has the opposite effect. They will not like you. And that's very human again. Or adapt your relationship. You know, if I want the other person to listen to me, then I, I don't care if they look away from me because I want them to listen to me. Of course, if I have a need to be looked at, then I can say, oh, I I want you to look at me because I feel like I need to, someone to look at me. And sometimes if they know that, okay, that's all I need to do, they will do it. Again, let's make it very, well, not simple. Maybe that's not the right word because for many people, this is not, not simple. But I think we should not make it more complicated than it is. And again, start from basic human needs and feelings. Yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking about early childhood educators. I really appreciate what you said about building the trust and just, just I just want to make sure that teachers have some tools to help their young students make those, uh, build those bridges better because they they go beyond their usual expectations of how it happens with other kids. Yeah, and I think sometimes um, here too, you know, we all have to learn social skills. But the problem with autism is that the, the typical social skills training is a rather artificial thing, I think. Yes. It's like learning how to say hello and so on. How yes. do you develop friendships? Not by scoring the first 20 minutes of the social interaction. It's by finding something mutual, doing something where you both have fun and that you discover, wow, I like your company, you like my company. And then even if you're a bit socially awkward, if we have fun together, who cares? So finding out about children's interest and then finding who could also have this interest and can we make a connection with, between those two kids rather than teaching this child in an artificial context where he has to say, hello, can I be your friend to an adult? Hello, can <laughs> I be play? your friend? Yeah. Yes, yes. And then and then go out and find a child that could be oh. the victim for the application of this uh, role <laughs> play. Uh, that's not what we should do. What we should do is, okay, do you see any kids where you think, oh, that's nice what they're doing. That seems to be like big fun. I would like to join them. Start from there. Mm. I, all of your solutions, are they just go, boom, hello. So, so sensible. Yeah. Did you want to say something, Elizabeth? Okay. I I, I really love that. Um, yeah. And I, you know, one of the things that I did in, in my 
past was we, I understand what you mean about the discrete social skills training isn't necessarily always productive. And, um, and I was introduced to this concept of social thinking, Michelle Garcia winner, have you heard of that? And so this idea of actually getting more into, you know, how do we think socially and helping students think about and you're engaging in conversation and you can do some, you know, mind mapping and things like that. But I, I appreciated that approach um, going beyond discrete skills that can maybe may or may not transfer into a real situation. Yeah, because um, I like Michelle's work um, for the simple reason that it's more empowering. Understanding social reality is more empowering than performing some skills or behaviors without understanding why you should do the way you do it things so uh, that's one thing what i like about her work the second thing is that it also gives you the ultimate choice look i understand do i make a choice now to do it or not to do it because some social skills training is otherwise just like okay you need to do this what if i don't want to do this there will be consequences yes obviously but that's my choice the one thing that I would add is, again, that it puts everything in the basket of the autistic child. What about, you know, social thinking, teaching autistic thinking to the other children? If Because sometimes they don't understand the behavior of the autistic child. And that could lead to misunderstandings or to difficulties in, in bonding and forming relationships. So I think... so. Michelle's work is wonderful, but what if she would make a social thinking book for the non-autistic children to learn to understand the behavior and how to relate to an autistic child? Again, that's the double uh, track approach that I. Uh, that's an interesting for. thought. I like that. I like that. And I've and I've you know done it with um, general ed population. I've done the curriculum in a whole class environment so that all the students, no matter where they find themselves, are being exposed to the same thing. Which oh, wonderful. It, which really worked well, but it's not the same as what you're suggesting is actually teaching others what it's like to think and perceive from a perspective that's autistic and how that might be different. I mean, it's a, it's a different way to approach. Well, we... we... We organize one day a year over here, uh, World Autism Awareness Day, where we do always a bridging activity. We call that bridging activities. Mm -hmm. So where we invite autistic people to make a bridge to the neurotypical population. And in that way, it does make sense to teach them certain skills and so on. But I think, you know, you should meet each other halfway the bridge. So bridging also means that you invite neurotypicals to learn from the autistic side and from the autistic perspective, because sometimes that can be quite refreshing. You know, sometimes in playing together, an autistic child, because he or she perceived the world in a different way, could bring in a new refreshing perspective into a game or could find, you know, the one mistake in the manual of a, of a table game. Um, so I think if we can learn to appreciate the differences from both sides without having to be perfect for each other then we would create a better world i think because 
too often, the, and that's a bit the risk with also with the materials uh, that, that Michelle developed, too often then autistic people think, oh, I'm the one who's wrong. I'm the one who needs to adapt. I'm, I'm the one who needs to be perfect in terms of meeting the expectations of the other ones. That's what Michelle is talking about, eh? unexpected and expected behaviors. Mm -hmm. But what if we turn it also around hmm? and, and ask neurotypical children to what is somebody who's autistic expecting from me and what is unexpected and expected behaviors for an autistic person and if we could meet each other halfway nobody has to be perfect then that means the autistic child is still allowed to make some mistakes in social interaction because how many mistakes do we allow in our teaching but also the neurotypicals do not have to be perfect they can make mistakes with an autistic child as well because Nowadays, with, with more and more autistic self-advocates, I often, what I, what I don't like is the polarizing. They blame non-autistics for not being perfect in their empathy towards autistic people. And then I think, hey, but that's, you know, that's what diversity is all about. You know, um, yeah. I'm a man. I will probably never understand the female brain, but as long as I'm good enough, I don't have to be perfect, you know, and the other way around. Um, and that 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 is true for diversity in terms of gender. That's true for diversity in culture. I would probably never understand a U.S. brain, and and U.S. brains probably will always have difficulties understanding European perspective. But that's okay, you know. That's okay as long as we don't hurt each other. As long as we don't feel excluded. As as long as we can meet each other halfway, then. Beautiful. I, oh, so right. And this reminds me, this brings to my mind um, what you were saying about neurodiversity and neurotypical and what is typical? Who is there a typical person? No, no, that does not <laughs> exist. That is there's an um that's a statistical artifact, you know, the average brain. Right. Nobody has the average brain. Right. Um and moreover, we, we oversimplify brains as if there would be one typical brain. No, I think we have all different dimensions in our brain, different cognitions, different brain zones. Indeed, we have them. And, and we all have a unique brains. So in that way, I don't think there is something like a neurotypical individual on this planet. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I want to make sure that um, I haven't run out of time with you before you talk about your happy project because I just that is so such a gift to the world and the, the word needs to get out you know so would you like me to ask you some questions about it or do you want to just talk from where you know I would be happy to answer questions about happy <laughs> um well, I, I think that what what's what's most beautiful for me I just always love it when people can uh be in a put in a position where they can solve and find solutions for themselves in their own terms. And it seems like you have created materials and workbook and uh, potential for people to have those kinds of tools that are self-empowering and create a life that in a direction that gives more meaning and fulfillment and happiness. Um, where is the question in that? I don't know. <laughs> now, well, maybe let me just tell you why I developed Happy, because yes. um, there's two reasons. One is that um, I see too much still 
all kinds of interventions trying to fix the autism. And I think, okay, we all need to, to work on our difficulties and so on. But what about authenticity? What about being yourself? So the goal should not be that autistic children should grow up to become less autistic, but they should become autistically happy. Uh, and that's again the basic need. Now that was already in the back of my head for 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 many years, but it you know it came to uh, a concrete project with the lockdown because um, March 2020 suddenly I could not do what I do for a daily living, namely traveling around <laughs> um, and 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 talking about autism. And suddenly I was at home in lockdown, like we all were. And I get all these emails from autistic uh, adults, but also from parents saying that there's so much stress and, and so much panic and anxiety that I thought, okay, Peter, you see, we all experience something similar now. We, we, you know, that was kind of like a big autism experience for all of us, the uncertainty, the unpredictability. And then I thought, okay, this is the moment where we share the same feelings all of us being afraid anxious unsure uncertain let's let's develop now something that is useful for autistic people but for all people and in that way i came to the, the basic human needs um and i had time because I, I could not travel so i sat here fortunately there's internet so i was still connected to the world and i thought okay what we all need now is um good strategies to remain mentally healthy and I was looking into all the well-being strategies and I knew all of them because they are very well known like relaxation physical exercise you know uh, good habits and routines for sleep and food and but I thought okay why do I see so many autistic people still not succeeding in being mentally healthy because there's a lot of research there it's probably because the well-being strategies have not been made autism friendly and that's when, when the two lines of my career came together, you know, ah. my knowledge about autistic thinking one way and the other way, knowing that there are a lot of evidence-based well-being strategies, but they are not developed for autistic people in their form. The, 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 they are evidence-based, but if, for instance, if you tell a child, okay, you, I, I see you're a bit stressed, it would be good if you relax a little bit. Well, relax a little bit. What is that? How do I have to do that? How long? Well, you, you know, you could do some good healthy breathing. What is healthy breathing? Well, breathe in slowly, hold it up for a couple of seconds, and then breathe out slowly. A couple of seconds. Is that two or is that four? You know, and, and, and slowly. How slow do I have to breathe? Uh, if I have to breathe in, is it until I almost suffocate holding up my breath? Or And that's when I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to take all these strategies, put an autistic layer on it in, in how you talk about it. But also, then I stopped because I talked too much. I was so amazed to find out that there is a lot of psychoeducation and psychoeducation means that we're telling kids who they are, what they are. I developed a program to tell children about their autism, namely I'm special, worldwide, 15 different languages. And then I think, okay, we're telling them that they have autism, but did anyone ever tell them what happiness is? And how you can become happy? No one. So that on this whole planet, there wasn't a single material 
teaching about happiness for autistic children, youngsters, and adults. And then I think, I can't be that smart, and I'm the first one to think about this. <laughs> but maybe I'm not, maybe I was just lucky yeah. uh, thinking this, but I, okay, I thought, okay, there's a big need. Um, and that's when I developed the materials for happy. Yeah. And happy is an acronym for? It stands for uh, Happiness in Autism Personal Project for young people. And young to me is between zero and 99 years. <laughs> I agree. I agree. <laughs> and so um, I saw that there's uh, people could go online and I will put that website um, for happy. But do you want to give it to us? The, the, the website for happy. Well, you can find it on my website, um, okay. www.petervermeulen.be. Now, the thing is that um, that's what I did during lockdown. And I made individualized well-being plans for both children and adults. Yes. Um, but at a given moment, I got so many demands that I thought, okay, I, I can never make plans for the whole world here. Exactly. So then I started to um, train coaches. And that's what I'm doing right now. I still make plans from now and then because I need to practice the own and, and see where I can uh, refine and, and update the, the strategy and the program. But uh, I'm now training coaches, happy coaches. And I'm, I'm very proud to say that I have coaches now over one. Well, I don't have them. They, they don't belong to me. They do what they want, but I've trained them. I've trained over 100 coaches all over the world from New Zealand to British Columbia um except south america i only have one happy coach in south america but but singapore asia um and africa is a big black hole literally sometimes india uh, india uh, yeah 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 fantastic yeah and you know what i do is i share my knowledge now I, I i i tell people how they can make a happy plan for an autistic child or a youngster or an adult right and it's not complicated i don't think um, it's not complicated, but you need to know the ingredients. That's all. But but everybody has their own recipe. And the thing is, it's individualized. So yes. it's not a workbook where you say, do this and do that. Yes. I give the ingredients. And what happy coaches have to do is to translate the strategies to this unique individual. Because if you make a well-being plan for a young child, it will be different than for an adult. But also... Um, I, I've developed some materials to be able to individualize. For instance, it's very important to do physical exercise for your mental health. Okay, part of the happy plan is physical exercise. But to me, if I want to make concrete suggestions, because that's what you need to do, yes. don't just tell autistic people, you know, it's good for your health that you do some physical exercise. Yes. What, where, when, how long? Hmm? Yes. So I, I've developed a questionnaire where I ask specific questions that help me or an autistic. A happy coach to give concrete suggestions for instance if i i ask people where they live and of course not their address that's not important to me but i ask them do you live in a big city do you live nearby a park do you live nearby the sea is it hilly around your place and why because if i know somebody's living near by the beach then i will give practical suggestions for physical exercise activities that you can do on the beach and that makes it more useful, more concrete, because what is difficult for autistic people is to translate abstract things into concrete things. 
making things concrete is difficult. And that's what I do with Happy. I train coaches how they can do this. Perfect. Um, Elizabeth, do you have any thoughts on that? Or? It makes makes wonderful sense to me. I see I, you smiling. <laughs> yeah, it makes wonderful sense. I really appreciate the way you describe it is here's the ingredients. Now the recipe is going to be individualized because we're all different. Um, and I've found also in my experience that just, I mean, one of the best ways to coach somebody with the exercise is to do it with them, to do some exercise with them. So I suppose if you were doing a Zoom coaching or something, that's not quite always possible, but I've gotten creative with that too, because, well, because then they're actually having the experience of doing the exercise. So they're more likely to remember it, but then they get to feel and make an immediate connection of how much better they feel just yeah. right there in the moment. And, 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 and that's indeed, that's that's a very important part of my training that I say, maybe it's not so difficult to suggest activities because the happy plan is not about try to be happy. The happy plan is, a good happy plan is full of concrete activities, things you do, hmm? because you don't become happy by thinking about happiness. You yeah. become happy by doing things. So it's very concrete, but then... My, my, I think I repeated at least a dozen of times during the training saying it's not because you have a good suggestion that an autistic person will be able to do it because translating it into reality is very difficult. And then there are different ways to go around. Either you do the activity together instead of saying you should be running more. Okay, go out running and do it together or, or take the person and go to the swimming pool together. Or you use somebody in the environment. And therefore, even with adults, that's, uh, I always work with the environment. Uh, when an adult asks me to make a happy plan, my first question is, okay, do you have someone who's going to help you to put those things into practice, who could do those things together with you? Because often I see them indeed nodding. Oh, that's a good idea, Peter. Oh, yes, thank you very much for this uh, tip. But nothing happens because then they go back home. And somebody has to push the start button <laughs> and, and doing it together is also um, part of the plan is also building on relationships again, because happy people, happiest people on this planet are the ones who are in good relationships. Yeah. Becoming happy on your own is quite difficult. You need other people to help you to become happy and other people need you to become happy and that's also part of the happy plan and again as i've been saying that's often a surprise to parents when in the happy plan i say and now we're going to talk about how your child is going to make other people happy <laughs> and that parents say wait a minute you're supposed to make a happiness plan for my child and now we're talking about making other people happy that's not what i pay you for I said no, but you know, the best way to become happy is to make other people happy. And it also, again, it's the, the autistic child, again, up there rather than down there. You need help, you need support to become happy. Now, you know, you could make a difference for another person. Exactly. And that's so empowering knowing, oh, so I can make other people happy as well. That's, you know, that I think that's a very empowering approach. So important and empowering. And uh, and that leads me to one, I hope I can squeeze out one more question from you is, 
you advocate for appropriately challenging autistic kids. And um, so I wanted to ask you about that challenge element. Um, of course, you don't want to go too far, but just. Yeah. No, well, that's that's, again, one of the surprising parts in the happy plan that at a given moment, um, I say, and now let's make a big challenge for you. And then often it's, well, I'm already that often stressed and, and, and the world is already very difficult for me. And now you're going to add some more challenges in my life. I said, yeah, because, you know, the happiest people are not the one without problems. They are the ones who experience, oh, when there is a problem, I can solve it. Yes. So uh, too often autistic children are made learned helplessness because everybody with, with good intentions oh, he's autistic, he needs some help. Let's not make it too difficult for him or her. Oh, no, no, doesn't have to do that. That's going to be a little bit too overwhelming. And I think what you're saying then is, I don't trust you in your abilities to cope with the difficulties of life. And of course, it's more difficult if you have autism. But I see them grow and thrive. And I say, I believe that you will be able to do that. But it's all about the balance. So I challenge but you make you have to make sure that they are successful in the challenge because otherwise it adds to all those failures they already experienced in life. So what I try to do is to let them for the first time experience success in something that is difficult. And again, that's scientifically based. This is known as the resilience paradox. You, you become more resilient, not by waiting until you're strong enough to face a challenge. You become more resilient by experience, oh, wait a minute, I could do this. And this was difficult. I am stronger than I think I am. And that's so important. Uh, I think that, that we should give these children the idea, yeah, yeah, it's gonna be difficult for you, but you know what? Hmm. I think you will manage. Um, rather than saying, oh, that's going to be difficult for you. Can I take over? Can I do that for you? Or you need some support? No, you will manage. But of course, we take the steps, if necessary, very, very small. Sure. Small wins add up. Yeah. For instance, when it comes to, like like now, the sentry issues, um, what kind the of first issues? one Sorry. sensory issues you know oh, you have all these kids who, who, who yes. suffer from all these noises that are unpredictable and what we do is we give them ear defenders or headphones and say okay and some of them wear them all day what i do is saying i think you can manage without but not the whole day you know you decide when you're gonna take off your headphones and you decide also for how long let's see how long you can take it and the fact that I say, I believe you can do without, it's like, are you serious? Because there's a lot of noise. Yeah, okay. It's, you can do more than you think. But I let them decide. It's again, not me forcing them into something. And that's very important, that there is always a choice. You need to challenge autistic children, but they need to have a choice in the challenge. Not whether they will be challenged or not. That's where I'm very directive and saying, I'm going to challenge you. I have yeah. no choice here, but you have choices where you will do it, when you do it, how often you will do it, how long you will do it. There I give limited choices. And then probably you have some follow-up 
So how long, what's your follow-up to that headphone? Uh, well, the follow-up is not did you succeed or not, mm -hmm. but did you try and how did it work for you? So too often we're talking in terms of failure or success. I'm not, well, obviously I'm, I am interested in success and failure, and I'm especially interested in successes rather than failures. So mm -hmm. if I focus on that one, I'm not going to ask them, um, did it work or not? I'm going to ask them, when did it work? That's another question. When did it work is saying, I'm interested in your successes. Mm -hmm. But also uh, telling them, and that's very important, you know, when we talk about predictability, we know autistic children need predictability, but often when we think about predictability, we only think about schedules. What are we going to do today? We need to also offer predictability in learning processes. And one of the things that we often forget to say is that, you know, it's called learning because you cannot do it perfectly from the first time. I have a very enthusiastic dog coming in the home here. Sorry, apologize for that. That's our Icelandic shepherd. Oh. Um, yes, I apologize for that. <laughs> There's two dogs and it, they're like, it sounds like they're killing each other, but it's okay. <laughs> how big are they um one is a, a smaller shiba inu and the other one is uh, quite tall <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> i don't know if you could you know a border collie uh-huh mm -hmm. it's more or less that size okay. but a little bit more <laughs> it's a shepherd's dog so it's, okay. he's wonderful but he's, he's still only seven months oh. so he's yeah very young and and has a lot of energy yes <laughs> Oh, but wait, now wait, you were talking about um, the response. What 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 was it? You were caught, we stopped in the middle of a really good, do you remember? Well, what I'm saying is that, that we need to also offer predictability in what learning is. Uh, because too often autistic children, because of their absolute thinking, they, they think I need to be able to do it immediately and perfectly. And then we're saying, no, what is learning? Learning is, ah. otherwise you would not, we wouldn't call it learning if you would be able to do it perfectly from the beginning. Yes. So even if they say, I could not manage to take off my headphones, and I say, that's okay. That's part of the process. Okay? So we skip that day. Let's try tomorrow again. And we'll see tomorrow. Um, of course, if a child keeps on saying 10 times I did manage, then I'm going to think maybe I made the step too big. Mm. So how can I make it successful? Then I you know, make the step smaller. Hmm? And then maybe just taking it off for one second and putting it on again. Could we do that tomorrow? Shall we try that tomorrow? Mm -hmm. hmm? You will manage to do that. Yeah, I'm sure. Or maybe and change it, the environment and request or, yes, yes, an environment yes. like that. Or, yeah, and, and that way, you know, it's also saying maybe, you know what? Maybe you can't take it off in the classroom because it's too noisy, but maybe if you would be allowed to go out hmm, where it's quiet, you could take it off there. I bet you can take it off there. Then again, you change the strategies. Yeah. But the goal is still that the child feels like, okay, I can control certain things in my life because too often autistic children do not learn that they have influence. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I just from this conversation, I'm just getting empathy, of course, as we talked about in the beginning, and respect. 
just so much respect for but but you know should we respect each individual each human being it's it's you know it's so basic that i think it's also, it's but it's not just uh, thank you very much that's a very big honor to hear that that, uh, that i'm respectful but it's also believing in the strengths of people yes because too often these diagnoses lead into what i call the victim mindset yes you know uh, autistic people are too often seen as victims either victims from uh, a neurobiological deficit or victims of a society that is not made for them. But what about giving, changing the victim mindset into a creator? I call it a creator mindset. You know, this world, you're one of the creators of this world. And you start, of course, with your little world around yourself. Um, and that's where we also work on independent skills that also experience look I can take care of myself but I can also take care of other people and and the creator mindset is a more empowering one than saying okay you can't do that because your brain works differently yeah that's true but that makes me a victim again yeah yeah I I am I am a, a warrior against the victim mindset it doesn't help anybody it's no just, yeah no, and sometimes this spreads to the environment as well, because what I sometimes see in schools, I don't know if you recognize this, Elizabeth, is that when there's an autistic child, and there's always indeed challenges and difficulties involved. We are not blind for that. But the victim mindset could spread to the whole uh, classroom. Yeah. The teacher then saying, I'm the victim because I'm the one with an autistic child in my classroom and the other ones don't have an autistic child. That makes it more difficult for me. The other kids feeling that they are victimized because, they're, well, there's one child and we need to be silent today because Peter here yes having some difficulties with noises then they feel the victim of autism and you know that doesn't help does it never when we change it into creator mindset and saying okay we're all creators how can we create an, a, a situation where it's comfortable for everyone then we're not lo longer talking about who needs to adapt to whom we're talking mm -hmm. about okay we're all creators we need each other to create a nice environment here so the child needs the teacher to create a nice school environment, but the teacher also needs the other kids to create a nice school environment for the teacher. Right. <laughs> for, for they, and they need to see that they're doing it for themselves, not just, you know, I mean, everything can be a win-win. Oh, yeah, that's it. That's the exact word. It's a win-win. We should start thinking from win-win situations. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Then people are more motivated. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Which is fine, of course, you know, because we all want to be happy, which is one of your main points. Yeah. What were you going to say, Elizabeth? Oh, I was going to say in, in the school that I most recently worked in, there was a, a big sort of movement where we started using some different language with the kids, like talking about mistakes and, um, you know, any kind of mistake or failure and talking it, about it as an, a, a learning moment. So rather than saying, oh, I made a mistake, we would all try to help reinforce with, you know, both staff and students, this concept that mistakes and failures are actually, that's the evidence that we are learning something. It's not something to, it's something to be celebrated rather than 
something to fear or you know see as exactly a but you see that then we share we, we share with each other then the trying to change the narrative around things because mm -hmm. too often we focus on the negatives and we call it a mistake yeah. but you could also say well that's part of my process so wow i'm learning i'm i'm, I'm very proud because it proves that i'm learning again it's how you I'm not saying that language is, is defining everything, but it reflects a kind of a mindset. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the mindset around autism is a little bit too negative, I think. Yes, I know. And I and I, I love how you just do a U-turn on everything around that mindset about autism. Um, so what what's one thing that teachers could take away, that parents could take away? I mean, or that they could put into action uh, aside from all the golden gems that have been shared here today. Um, does anything come to mind? Are there well, what, what I think is, um, I get a lot of questions from both parents and teachers and it always starts with, there is a difficulty. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Okay, start from there. And I'm not saying that we should ignore them and say, okay, you write down the difficulty and then try to, every word that is in there that is having a negative connotation, so the word difficulty, um, cannot do this or does not succeed, try to change that into a positive one. And then try to think what is needed to create the positive situation. Okay. The child has difficulties making friends. Okay. He can make friends if he can make friends when. Try to rephrase those things. And then you will start thinking about solutions rather than analyzing what is the cause of the difficulty. Because you can keep on analyzing until it's Christmas or even way beyond Christmas. That doesn't help you to find solutions. If you force yourself to think in solution terms, that will help. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, darkness. Good starting place. Good starting. That's the starting place. The starting place to start with turning whatever may be coming forth as a negative, try to turn it around and spin it into a positive. Well, it for is instance, he's around. aggressive when and that, that and that happens. You could also say, okay, he could be calm if he could be calm when. So again, the creator mindset, what do we need to create to make that possible? Mm -hmm. So then the teacher or the parent uh, are shifted from being the victim of this situation to being the creator in the situation. Again. And probably the co-creator of the solutions. Yeah, because just as uh, autistic children too often hear, you cannot do that. I think parents and teachers sometimes feel helpless as well. Yes. Like, okay, th um, this all happens and I don't know what to do. And, and so therefore telling them, yeah, you, you, you can change things. You, you have the power. Sometimes they need knowledge. That's, that's why I'm in this field. Of course. To give them, to give them the knowledge 
to because it's easy to say well you can make a change but then they ask me how and that's where the knowledge parts come in of if course. you know a couple of things then it makes it easier to create the conditions good so therefore autism training is very important i think yes and um so and i think your website has some really beautiful insights in the youtubes that i watched of you presenting at conferences so i will put all of that information there because it's really inspiring and it shifts the thinking into very constructive channels um i i respect your time peter um I'm speechless and so <laughs> grateful to you for what you're bringing into no, the world. It's a pleasure. And thank, and thank you so for giving me the opportunity so to share my thoughts. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for letting me join. It was so, so exciting. And I, I just want to say too that the I think the reason why I went into the field of special education was because of the happiness that I felt when I had the opportunity to be with kids with autism. It was specifically the kids that I was working with with autism. I experienced so much happiness in, in relating with them. And the challenge of it brought me happiness. I loved it. And, and just that whole, um, it, it really opened my heart and my empathy. And I wanted to go on and you know continue doing that and working with parents and professionals and teachers. So I really value your work and it's super inspiring and Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And Thank you. have a nice day. Yes. Uh, say hi to the dogs for me and your family. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>